that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On today's program, we hear stories from the Gumboo Girls. In the 1970s, 34 young women migrated to rural Prince Rupert and Haida Gwaii in northern British Columbia, many of them leaving cities from across Canada. And some left for adventure, and some just wanted to get away from the urban lifestyle and uh, that they felt they, they couldn't necessarily relate to. These stories are documented in a new book, Gumboot Girls, Adventure, Love, and Survival on the North Coast of British Columbia. Over the next hour, we'll hear a number of these stories. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And in the 1970s, many women flocked to the North Coast in search of a different lifestyle. The port city of Prince Rupert was a resource town, and the local economy was certainly booming. The story of 34 women who migrated to Prince Rupert, Haida Gwaii, and other surrounding areas in BC's uh, North Coast, many of them coming from cities across the country, uh, is now documented in a new book uh, entitled Gumboot Girls, Adventure, Love, and Survival on the North Coast of British Columbia, and I recently sat down with a number of the Gumboot Girls here in Vancouver, along with producer Mia Edbrook. Why don't we start by going around and introduce yourself and uh, tell us why you were drawn to Prince Rupert in the first place. <laughs> um, okay, well, it's Laurie here, and um, I went to Rupert because I knew there was quite a bit of work there in the fishing industry and I was 19 and that was sort of the thing to do in the 70s was I wasn't you know I wasn't wanting university or a home in the suburbs so I I followed some friends to Prince Rupert and what year was that 1974 okay okay so I'm Annika Van Vliet and uh I ended up in Prince Rupert, I, I was, and I say this in my story as well, is that basically I was getting over a sort of a sad love affair, the end of one in Vancouver, and decided I needed to get out of town. And so I went with a friend, and basically, you know, we kind of decided we want to go to Charlotte's, just somewhat on a lark for the summer. And so I arrived and ended up staying for three years. So it was obviously ended up being more than a lark, and it <laughs> became a lifestyle in the end. 
Okay. Hi, I'm Helen Heffernan, and I first went to uh, Prince Rupert, actually Salt Lakes, um, in 1976, I think the summer, and I think that summer we had six weeks of no rain, and I fell, fell in love with it. Went back to the city and realized I loved that wild landscape. Six weeks of no rain in Rupert, yeah. which is known, yeah. ironically, I, I think, for... Maybe it wasn't six, maybe it was three, but it was... When it's not, when it's not raining in the Rupert Harbor, it is a it is heaven, and then and also I graduated in '76, and a thousand teachers were laid off. I graduated as a teacher, okay. and uh, I knew I could get te a teaching job in Prince Rupert, and I did. Okay. So in the 1970s, um, lots of people um, and women were were flocking to the North Coast for jobs. And certainly all of you mentioned in some ways that was one of the pull factors. Um, but can you talk more about living there and coming? I know you have, some of you have come from different places across the country. Um, what that was like um, essentially migrating uh, to this northern community? Well, it was fantastic. <laughs> and and it was very freeing, yeah. you know, to get there and to... You had a sense of having left behind hell and arrived at, in heaven. Yeah. It was that dramatic, for me anyway. And Helen, where did you come from? From Toronto. Toronto, okay. Yeah. Toronto was ugly and mean and cold, and Prince Rupert was friendly and a little rainy, but <laughs> <laughs> but mainly there were a lot of smiles. Were Were you drawn because of... The location, the people. Um, oh, did you want out of the city? Yeah, and, we definitely yeah. wanted yeah. out of the city. But, uh, but the people in Prince Rupert, we were welcomed the minute we got there. We stepped out of this beaten up old car and and were embraced in a way that we certainly weren't in Toronto. So mm -hmm. we felt welcomed and welcomed by other young people. Yeah, yeah. Or by locals immediately, like. I literally stepped out of the car and there we were on the dock and Paul Matson was there and we knew Paul from Toronto so oh. that was our connection talk more about why Toronto um, was so cold for you well it was hard to get a good job mm -hmm. it was impossible um, so we were earning very little money and living in, a, in dives and cooking a pot of beans on Sunday night, and our luxury was a beer every mm -hmm. night with our beans. And uh, we were poor, and we were really disenchanted with the Toronto landscape mm -hmm. and the pollution, all so the things is... that people hate about cities. Still, mm -hmm. but I, I, I guess it wasn't that bad when you look back. But it seemed terrible to us. It seemed ugly. Well, this is sort of the height of modernism yeah. in. Was North dirty. American cities, yeah. high rises and concrete, yeah, yeah. bland, bland. The malls, <laughs> the mall, the mauling was beginning. Yeah. The mauling of mm -hmm. North America had yeah. begun, and um, there were and a lot of things that I loved about Toronto. But it was overall, it was co getting colder and colder, and harder and harder to stay there. Mm -hmm. So, just to continue on with that, did you just hop in a car? Did you yeah, we did. yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah. A leaky old car, <laughs> but we made it across in January. Okay. <laughs> okay. Annika, you came from Montreal 
Did, mm-hmm. you, did you feel the same way about the big city? You know, I don't really think I went to Prince Rupert as a rejection of the city. <clears throat> to me, I think it was more... It wasn't sort of some um, uh, pre-planned kind of, you know, political reason. I mean, I think I just went for the adventure. I think that's what I was into in those days. I mean, I grew up in Montreal, and to this day I still love Montreal, and had lived in Vancouver for a couple of days, so that's or a couple of years. <clears throat> so that's, and from there I took a ferry to Rupert. I mean, that, that was kind of my migration up there. But I'm not so sure it was a disenchantment with the city, but I think basically I fell in love with the community there when I got there. So that's really what made me stay. And the lifestyle as well, which was a big adventure. It was all about adventure in those days. (laughs) I wanted to challenge myself to try things, you know, that I hadn't done before, which certainly the lifestyle was, learning new things, having grown up in a city. And, you know, I, I mean, I was only there for three years. A lot of people were there a lot longer. And the whole thing was just a, a big adventure. You know, with its ups and downs, I mean, I, I don't want to romanticize it either. There was certainly, uh, it was a hard lifestyle, you know, considering, you know, how relationships changed, et cetera, et cetera. There was pain as well. There was a lot of personal growth. I mean, mm-hmm. it was being in your 20s, I think, was part of that. Do you think there was a sense of optimism and, like you mentioned, the sense of adventure that you could uproot yourself from Toronto or Montreal, go for this adventure and come back to or continue on with that life and that there would be opportunity no matter sort of what path you took. You could go on this adventure and you could pick up your life in the city or pursue a career Mm -hmm. and that was all possible. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't some huge diversion that that would disrupt your entire Uh, path. No, we were very optimistic. Yeah, and And it was, you know, it was a time of, no matter what, you could always get a job. Yeah. I never worried about that kind of stuff. You know, it was a very optimistic time. Mm -hmm. I always say that to people. I mean, despite there's sort of, I think there's some criticism these days, you know, about those old hippies and all that stuff. But I, I always say the advantage for me was that it was just... It was a very, it was a hopeful time to grow up, and I feel very lucky about that. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece I always say is that, you know, it was kind of post-birth control, pre-AIDS, you know, which was this pocket of time mm-hmm. where, you know, it was possible to have the whole sexual revolution as well. So that was mm-hmm. sort of all part of the adventure. Mm-hmm. It was sort of testing and challenging all those morals, et cetera. And really the first time that uh, <clears throat> I think that a generation of women mm. sort of went out on their own, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you come out to Prince Rupert by yourself? I did, yes. Yeah, yeah that in itself is quite brave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was friends, and I had friends there. Yeah. You know, but. How much of this was a rejection of perhaps a conservative family or set of values that um, maybe was placed upon you? Did that play into this at all? Uh, it did for me. Yeah. Um, but not not really in an angry kind of way. It just didn't... The home in the suburb, the um, shopping in the malls, um, I just had no taste for it at mm-hmm. all. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I felt the same way. It wasn't really an overt rejection or an angry kind of 
back to the land thing. We're going to do something better. It was more like adventure and, you know, yeah, I wasn't, why, why live in a city if you're not interested in partaking mm-hmm. in the consumer culture, if that doesn't do anything for you. But that is something that is brought up in a lot of these stories, is the back to the land movement. And everyone talks about gardening and fishing and really providing for themselves. And, but you don't feel that that was one of the reasons. Well, yeah, there, there was, oh, I think we talked about it a little bit, you know, but we didn't, we weren't real back to the landers because we weren't really running a, co- a co-op or a commune. We were all doing our own thing. And, and that's, uh, you know, there might have been pockets within the book of those people. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. we're actually, we're all Prince Rupert people, and half the book is people that went to the Charlottes. And, you know, everyone went for different reasons, but, um, yeah, I think the, the people on the Charlottes even, anyway. And, I, you know, I think we were aware that there was the Back to the Land movement going on. It definitely was the background for what we were doing. Mm-hmm. We were, we did felt feel a part of it, but not so much integral to it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. not. We weren't really good hippies. We were just hippies. <laughs> we didn't really want to be good. We were, we were skimming off the top and off the bottom. You know, yeah, really. Yeah. We were there. We were just having fun. Yeah. yeah. But but having said that, we all lived off the grid. Yeah. You know, we didn't. I there was no electricity. I mean, I lived as we all did. I lived in a cabin with wood fire, no electricity, et cetera, et cetera. So certainly no electronic. Yeah. No, no. You know. So there was an element of that there. But not it's for righteous reasons so much as save on rent. Partially, but I mean, partially, as I said earlier, I think it was the adventure of trying it, you know, and getting into a motorboat every morning to go to work and that kind of thing. But it's not like we were self-sufficient and lived off fish in our gardens, right? It was, for one thing, gardening in Prince Rupert. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty questionable, you know, you couldn't really live off it, you know, unless you wanted to eat, I don't know. You'd have to build a very big greenhouse. (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah. So, but we were off the grid, for sure. Uh, It's just Mm -hmm. that we weren't Mm self-sufficient, I would say. Yeah. How were you perceived when you arrived in Rupert? Were you seen as sort of the the children of middle-class families that were being, you know, that were just transplanting themselves into a rural community? And sort of this was, was was there any, I guess, any... um, Conflict. Conflict, yeah, with with people who have been who had been living in, in Rupert for a long time, seeing all these young people come in and sort of resenting that in a way. I think there's probably was some of that. Um but I don't feel it personally affected me. I don't think there there wasn't anger or um and you know, boats and, and being on the water is part of being in Prince Rupert, mm-hmm. whether you're a hippie or not, mm-hmm. you know. But I think we are definitely seen as hippies, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. walking around in our southwesters and gumboots mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And Smelling of wood smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember the kids in the school telling me I smelled yeah, wood smoke. that too, actually, in the post office, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think there was a separation in the communities, for sure. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily feel resentment from town people. No. Mm-hmm. But th- we did have our own little community there, and people kind of knew about it. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece, I think, is that it was a very transient community, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people that came in, in the summers for cannery work. So there was a constant flux of people. So it wasn't like it was a staid little town and 
nobody knew ever came, and then we all of a sudden arrived. Mm-hmm. It was constantly in transition in those mm-hmm. days when there's lots of fish. And the whole fleet would come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From in the summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty busy. Huge uh, BC fleet. Yeah. So it like, I don't know how many boats were in that fleet, but probably in the thousands. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Let's talk about what people did to occupy their time and to find. Um, employment, what were some of the different jobs that you had? Well, definitely the season, seasonal fishing work, whether on <clears throat> boats or in the canneries. Myself, I happened to get a job in the post office and worked in the post office. Mm-hmm. And I worked as a waitress for a while, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, But seasonal work was... How many like, restaurants were in Rupert at the time? Oh, a lot, and a lot of yeah. bars, too. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> come off the boat and yeah. grab a drink well, that's Absolutely. Sure. Like, there yeah. were a lot of money yeah. in Prince Rupert yeah. in those days fishermen you know money passing people's hands when yeah. they, you know for two or three years in the herring seasons I think that was like well it's interesting to think of that as perhaps a highly localized economy and sort of you go fishing you get paid and then you go to the bar in town owned by probably a local owner of the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. spend it all mm-hmm. on some drinks. <laughs> like mm-hmm. It sort of just circulates within that yeah. community. Quite interesting in a way that I don't think we necessarily see today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Helen, what did, you, what did you do? I taught and I also worked deckhanded three summers in a row on fish boats, which is another whole story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, when I started, I did one cannery season there, mm-hmm. and, and part of it was I needed the money, but it was it also felt like you had to work at least one season of cannery in mm-hmm. Prince Rupert. It was just the, the lifeblood of the town to mm-hmm. do something around fishing. And it was a fabulous time because everybody was involved with fishing. You know, you either were working canneries or there were fish boats coming in, and everybody stank like fish, and we're all doing, you know, I did an overnight <laughs> shift, and... And so lots of us, you know, were sleeping during the day and on and on. And it was a short season. It was three or four months, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of part of the adventure once mm-hmm. again, you know. Yep. So I did that one one season. And then I actually owned a health food store, which people kind of laugh about now. So I'm not exactly Ms. Health Food. <laughs> but I did. And, uh, and then eventually I ended up being a letter carrier in the post office. So I had a very physical lifestyle in those yeah. days, you know, getting in and out of boats and then heading up to the post office to deliver mail. Yeah. And I had a great route because I eventually got the downtown route and being a very social person, you know, I would sort of wander downtown and deliver my mail and go for a little coffee with friends and then <laughs> continue and yeah. it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Were there a lot of women working in the cannery? Pretty well. The, I mean, the, the the jobs were pretty divided in those days, yeah. right? So the cannery, the line, the people that were actually... I was doing a herring season. Uh, the people actually sort of touching the fish and squeezing out the row stuff were pretty well all women, yeah. yeah. And, and I, then the truck, the drivers of the forklifts, et cetera, were all men. Yeah. Pretty and well. And I, I was one of the few female deckhands. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom has also wrote her story in this book or told her story in this book. Um, she talks about being a laborer at the pulp mill and being one of the only females, or maybe the only, actually, now that I think back to it. So. Mm-hmm. And I, I I, think about her, she talks about carrying the 50-pound bags and whatnot. She's quite a small woman. But what, what they thought of her, if they had seen a woman before her. 
so mm-hmm. but I don't I don't know in in terms of gender roles or mm. how you felt you played into that well yeah. I mean it was the beginning of feminism right I mean I think that's sort of what what Laurie was saying earlier just that as women there was this whole big world out there that we could challenge that was part of it but I remember at one point I applied for a job at a lighthouse on my own I mean I think about it now what I've done they're all alone but anyway you know but I wanted to do it you know women could do this stuff and I just remember singing in front of a panel of about five people because it was a government job and they were questioning me on my mechanical skills to start with which I don't have and still don't have and thinking, you know, they're not going to hire me, of course, but it was a very intimidating experience. But I'm sure they'd never had a woman, a single woman, apply yeah. at that point. Hmm. You know, and now I'm assuming that's probably changed, you know, because well, these days... probably yeah. not much, though. No, no, I, when I think yeah. of the fish plants that I still sometimes work in, it's mostly women on the lines, a lot of women. And um, running boats is still the men are most... Strange. I mean, there's women, for sure. There's women like us that are running boats. or Still, women... Are still the yeah. teachers for the most part, I mm-hmm. think yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Still the nurses, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I still, mm-hmm. you know. I, yeah, we we definitely had hopes as feminists that we could break those mm-hmm. gender gender uh, divisions, but mm-hmm. um, now we don't want to be bankers or bosses, <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, <laughs> I think it has changed yeah. dramatically. Yeah. I mean. I remember at one point working in a bank, and it was like, you know, the women were all on the front line and the men were all managers. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time, like, it was noticeable to me because mm-hmm. where they sat. Yeah. No, and now that is not the case yeah. anymore, you know. So yeah. there has been change Absolutely. for sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah. back in our day, too, there was no women radio voices or TV voices. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that came in in the early 70s, mm-hmm. you know. Women weren't in the media. Was there a, a CBC station in Rupert? Oh, yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. Did that come up in the, almost, someone's story? Almost yeah. every story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we had a wonderful yeah. message system through the CBC. That, cause we didn't, none of us had phones. Right. So we could communicate through message time on CBC two or three times a day to someone out either at Salt Lakes, which is just across the harbor. From so French what is Rupert. message time? I could, I could phone CBC and say... I want to leave a message for Helen on Skiaco Bay mm-hmm. or Helen in Crippen Cove. I'll meet her at 7 tomorrow. Okay. Or And then everybody knows. And then everybody knows. <laughs> right. And everyone shows up now. Yeah. <laughs> or they watch remember, you, they do. Yeah. So many messages. You know, like I remember when Dolly, who had her babies, one of her babies had been announced on the, on okay. the radio, had my baby, you know. I think mainly we used it for party announcements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or whether, that you too. know, I think, you know, and I think our use of it in Salt Lakes was different from Skyapple Bay, mm-hmm. which is further away. So yeah. they, you know, if you wanted to get a message to them, that was the only way mm-hmm. you could. You couldn't, hmm. yeah. Some yeah, CBC was fun. crucial. It was, it really was. fun to yeah. listen to. And, and, then, yeah. and then that's all we, you know, we didn't have any other radio station mm-hmm. really, so... Yeah. Yeah, it made you feel really connected when you'd hear a message, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't for you, but Mm -hmm. if it was somebody you knew, you'd think, oh, they're up to something. We exist, we exist, somebody knows about us. Yeah, (laughs) and it was access to the outside world, Mm -hmm. obviously, to what was going on outside. Mm -hmm. What was housing like in Rupert, and how did you acquire it when you got there? Well, I built... uh, 
Norm and I built our place. Mm -hmm. And well, first we lived in a little caravan that was about eight by six by eight, I think, or six by ten or something like that. And uh, we lived there while we built our cabin, which is what my story is about. And but uh, when my mother came to visit, my poor mother. I should apologize to her the way Shelley did to her mother. But I took her over the ways, bang, bang, bang. And then she walked into this little cabin that we were so proud of, and she said, it was 600 square feet, that cabin, and she said, I don't think I've ever lived in a place this small. She was appalled. She was really appalled. But we thought it was so beautiful. But it was all, from, we, it was all built from recycled materials. None, none of it was new. Everything was from the Function Junction building that had been taken apart. So we used windows, floor. Our flooring was all tongue and groove fur flooring and beautiful. You know, it was, we put it all on the diagonal, and but it was all recycled materials. So mm. uh, I, I think maybe we bought nails, and that's it mm. for that place. How I, long did that? Sorry, how long did that take? It took us a summer, and then I went to work teaching, and Norm con- continued and until maybe Christmas. So okay. I mean, there was no plumbing to do other yeah. than um, the herring vat outside catching the rainwater right. so I mean, and there was no real wiring we didn't have electricity so it was a pretty simple little mm-hmm. shoebox but that must have been quite unusual to build your own house well your parents I, did it too I would yeah. say and my parents lived there for almost 10 years and it I, I don't know how looking back on it which year they actually did they didn't build their house right away but they no. built it, that yeah. A-frame I think they were building it in 78 yeah. right and, same time we were building ours, actually. But again, was that unusual? or? Well, there was a lot of hammering and sawing going yeah. on and chainsaws. Yeah. And, no, well, I think we'll, we're talking Crippen Cove, yeah. which is mm-hmm. where your mother lived, mm-hmm. and where four or five of the right. Gumboot girls lived at that time. Yeah. So that would have been four or five families, or couples, and now there's one family there. Right. In Salt Lakes, where Annika and I lived, you know, over, you know, 10 years or so, there was always, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 people living there. There's nobody there now. Mm-hmm. Um, in Salt Lakes, we squatted. Well, there were a couple of people had their leases, but a lot of it was squatted. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Salt Lakes is an old, before there was a road out of Prince Rupert in the 40s, 50s, that Salt Lakes was their sort of summer place where they'd go and spend their the, the population of Prince Rupert would there'd be a ferry over for them to walk up to the trail to swim on the lake so there was cabins there but once the road was built out of Prince Rupert people abandoned those mm-hmm. cabins so there was these cabins for us hippies to move into <laughs> <laughs> so without electricity you obviously were keeping busy chopping wood for the wood stove mm-hmm. yeah, yeah we chopped wood and yeah. yeah, we beachcombed fire. We beach-combed. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was fun. We, we lit really mostly fun. with kerosene lamps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, propane, maybe, yeah. sometimes. Propane lights with a bit better lighting. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love when Kathy talks about how she singed her eyebrows and then she just wore gloves and a sweater <laughs> for a really long time <laughs> to keep warm because mm-hmm. she got scared. Well, I mean, when you have these houses with, they're not that well insulated, I assume, and it's pretty damp in Prince Rupert. Mm-hmm. Pretty wet. You and must none have been of our chilled stoves to the bone. were very good yeah. either. Yeah. They mm-hmm. were, you know, we're lost really... a lot of heat. <laughs> Just what? Going and it was salty, waterlogged wood. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Burnout stoves part. pretty quickly. And, yeah. and the stoves were 
your basic, you know, $100 stove, if that. If I've you heard don't. them called hippie killers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did they actually kill a lot of hippies, though? Yeah, I guess because they, they do take off and Yeah, burn. but I mm-hmm. don't remember hearing no. stories. I don't know we, anyone we who's cabin. Yeah. Just, no. just Kathy Coffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I had a lot of close calls, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I think, or possible close calls. Mm-hmm. I'd like to yeah. think that, you know, on some level we knew what we were doing. We yeah. knew what a you know we kept our stove pipes clean mm-hmm. yeah you know but i've been known to throw a bit of kerosene on the fire to get it going because the fire mm-hmm. was wet yeah. but you know i know what kerosene can do you mm-hmm. know and if you weren't on the ball you might throw gasoline in there mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. none of us did that mm-hmm. if it ever did happen it was probably you know a drunk not a hippie <laughs> no, <laughs> or a drunk but i mean it was amazing how quickly you could heat up one room with a little yeah. you know a little airtight stove yeah. mm-hmm. just like that pretty quickly yeah, or yeah. It and up. it wasn't Saskatchewan I mean it'd be cold and wet <clears throat> yeah but not usually freezing you know mm-hmm. so you'd... yeah it's a pretty benign climate actually yeah, yeah. the wind mm-hmm. the wind and the storms mm-hmm. that's what took more lives really mm-hmm. yeah the, the water potential yeah the storms and, but I mean I, I love chopping wood I still love chopping wood <laughs> actually and you know when I first got there I had no idea how to do it yeah. It took me months, you know. And I was Western kind of embarrassed, you know, because I thought people were watching me or something, which I'm sure they weren't. And you know, just getting the art of chopping wood, which is an art, you yeah. know, and event now I can do it. No yeah. problem. I mean, if someone needs wood chopped, I'm happy to do it. It's a good way to keep warm. Mm-hmm. It is so actually. That was always what they said, yeah. And there's a sort of a Buddhist, Buddhist saying or that's like go back, chop wood, chop <laughs> mm-hmm. water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay. kind of this like meditative. And, and sort it was of free. Mm-hmm. It was there on the beach. Yeah, because yeah. of the log booms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, there that were always good. free logs around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if we were chopping down trees for, for yeah. fuel. Yeah. No. It was all there on the beaches. Yeah. We were actually uh, cleaning up the beaches. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that was another outing of one or two or three of us. You'd climb in the boat and you'd go out and spot the boat. The good high floaters because you knew then they'd be kind of dry wood and you'd tow them back mm-hmm. high tide so they're close to your cabin and then right buck them up buck them up mm-hmm. chop them did, did your friends show you the ropes oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah for sure yeah yeah mm-hmm. everybody How showed you? everybody mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think I learned from a New Yorker most of them <laughs> 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 I did from Paul as yeah, well actually yeah. mm-hmm. Paul taught me a lot mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But there was a kind of generosity about that, I For think, sure. and a willingness. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think it was exciting to kind of teach other people yeah. about the life. And it and wasn't really a one-upmanship. No, no. About, it wasn't about, a competitive. About, yeah. And it's, you know, and with the men as well. But, like, I do remember I enjoyed going with the women to Beach Comb. I mean, sometimes I'd do it with, you know, my partner or... Um, but it was like much, it was like a cooperative thing, you know? You'd work together. That's how it would work. Uh, it wasn't. Um, yeah, Salt Lakes was more that way than Crippen. Crippen, mm-hmm. we were more in our separate worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have friends that would come and visit you from the city or from other places? Uh, you mentioned your mom coming to visit you, Helen, but mm-hmm. I'm just curious whether you had people. Obviously, your social circle sort of became everyone in Rupert, but did you leave behind friends in, in other places, and were they somewhat fascinated with what you were doing, or thought you were completely wacko? <laughs> <laughs> I did actually have 
uh, friends that yeah. came and stayed, and I also had friends that came and ran, yeah. mm. appalled, yeah. and 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 actually tried to take me with them, rescue me. <laughs> they thought you you needed yeah. rescuing you. Yeah, yeah. They, they came all the way from Toronto. Yeah, a couple of friends wow. came and just really wanted to get me out of there. It was they came on mercy missions <laughs> to get me out of there and. And it was kind of sad. I, I, I felt really badly sending yeah. them away without me because yeah. they really wanted to take me and I didn't want to go. Did they? They, did, they thought it was really bad. They thought it was imp- a kind of impoverished and, yeah. and, and low-down, skunky lifestyle and they didn't like it. Were they, were they worried that... Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's curious. Obviously, you're there on your own free will, but... Yeah, I find that fascinating that they wouldn't at least have some sense of respect for what you were trying to do or the kind of community you were kind of trying to create. No, I think there was a lot of disrespect, yeah. actually, for what we were doing <laughs> in, in my world. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in, in my world, I would say there wasn't disrespect. There might have been more kind of doubt and maybe a bit of... They couldn't understand, especially my parents, who never came to visit. But but my parents were homesteaders and raised eight kids in Saskatchewan, and I'm one of the youngest. So they, my mom would have no, she wouldn't want to go and live without running water or Mm -hmm. any of this. She did it. She Mm -hmm. did it in northern Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it was. I don't think she quite got that uh, Mm -hmm. that desire to live that kind of Mm -hmm. willingly live that kind of lifestyle. You know. Were friends really just satisfied, or they felt like the way to live was to just get that job and kind of do the nine to five and live that sort of work ethic? And they felt like you weren't you weren't adhering to that, and so therefore, what's wrong with you? Like, yeah, but I mean, their no, their criticism wouldn't have been exactly that. I don't think more like. Um, there's so much out there in the world. Why are you sitting in this? Why are you in Rupert? <laughs> in this rainy, forested yeah. little enclave of people. Yeah. Why don't you, you know, there's yeah. a whole world out there. Why don't you do something with your life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's surprising. a book being written by our I mean, it's surprising in a way because I just think that people worked really hard. It was a yeah. lifestyle. It was a hard lifestyle, you know, and this assumption somehow that what you were doing wasn't important or something, you know, it's it's strange. But I know for me what happened was that I fell in love, went off traveling for a year, and uh, ended up in Toronto like about a year later after I'd left, working in a downtown office. And I remember sitting in this, learning how to do word processing, you know, because I went back and stayed with my parents who were in Toronto at that point. And I remember just sitting in this office thinking, I can't believe that, you know, a year ago I was, I I mean, I didn't, I wore gumboots for three years, you know, and I was trying to dress like an office. I had one outfit or something. But anyway, but so that was one reason, and eventually I came back to Vancouver. But there was, I think for me it was, I started feeling quite isolated from the world mm-hmm. and feeling a need to return to something less isolated because mm-hmm. Prince Rupert is, was pretty, is still obviously mm-hmm. isolated. Mm-hmm. You know, access is limited. It's a long ways to bigger cities, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And... I'm very much an urbanite, so I think that's what kind of drew me back eventually. Hmm. Hmm. And you, Laurie? 
Um, yeah, I think for a new adventure, something different. I th and a lot of my close friends mm. had left. I mean, I, I, and when I left, I left behind a lot of close friends. Um, but there was something new, I think. And, and Paul moved for work as well. What was that like to sort of, for lack of a better term, reintegrate back into the city and that experience? Um, well, you know, for me, I'd never lived in a big city, really, so mm -hmm. it was a new experience for me. I mean, I'd spent time yeah. in big cities, but I'd never really... So it was a new experience for me. Um, it, was, it was exciting, and it was okay. I mean, I think pretty much from the day I got here till now, which is... 20 some years I've always thought I'd go back to the country somewhere mm -hmm. you know this point in time for me Prince well yeah Prince Rupert is is far away it's an expensive place to be so that would be one of the reasons why I wouldn't choose mm -hmm. Prince Rupert as a place to go back to mm -hmm. but back into the more closer to the natural world oh I would love that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know still in my future I hope mm -hmm. Yes, reintegration was a lot harder than I ever mm. thought it would be. I didn't really think about it, and then was faced with it. And um, I, some in some ways, I think I feel like I've been playing catch up ever since. <laughs> Which might be just um, my own illusion, but there, it did feel like there was some catch up to be done, mm. which I hadn't anticipated. What do you mean by catch up? We have yours. Seniority, no seniority, and all that <coughs> stuff. Just a job, you know, just <laughs> money. money in the bank. Money mm -hmm. in the bank. Coming back now to Vancouver, um, you're all here now, <laughs> which is somewhat remarkable, I guess. Maybe can you talk about the period of time? Was it sort of this constant back and forth of people arriving and people leaving? Or was there sort of this mass exodus of um, folks from, from Rupert who had initially come there um, sort of together? Well, I think among our, our group of friends, which is only me, about half the, <laughs> half the book, you know, um, it was a gradual exodus. Some people yeah. left, some other person left. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it was a mass exodus. No, it I was mean, there was maybe, I mean, there certainly jobs dropped off very quickly, but people stayed and grew up there. They didn't have to, they didn't have to come to Vancouver to get a nine-to-five job or grow up, yeah. you know? Yeah. We just, it was an age thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It seems to me it was gradual. <clears throat> I mean, I just remember I lived on Commercial Drive area, which I still do, and just being sitting in a coffee bar in the drive and thinking, you know, there was maybe five or six people that I knew from Rupert. This was kind of in the beginning because I was one of the first people out. Mm -hmm. And just kind of being astounded, you know, we sort of transplanted ourselves mm -hmm. out of Prince Rupert into Vancouver, mm -hmm. you know. And how would that, how would that happen, you know? I mean, it was great, but... So it seems like it was kind of gradual. And then it, most people did end up in Vancouver from my circle of friends in yeah, Prince Rupert. Group, yeah. Do you think you have that sense of community here in Vancouver, obviously, um, pretty much everyone has come back to Vancouver or the Lower Mainland. Do you feel like you have that? And um, if not, why not? Absolutely. Yeah? Still. Yeah. You know, I always say to people, like, it's quite amazing. I have 
a group of friends here, a large group, a large community that I've known for 30 years at least, more. And, you know, I, I forget that that's actually quite exceptional. Mm-hmm. And it's from that period in my life, it's quite amazing mm-hmm. that someone's known you that long and went through that experience with you. You know, when we did that lifestyle, whatever, did the whole sort of Rupert hippie thing. And uh, very important for me, mm-hmm. the community here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's even stronger because that's what time does to communities, you know. Um, when we have the children and we have the grandchildren that, like, we celebrate two or three times a year with a, with a group of 30 or 40 friends. That mm-hmm. That's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're pretty lucky. When you look at younger people, um, myself included, do you think do you think this is an era or an experience that can be replicated, or do you think it was very much sort of a product of the time? I think it was probably a product of the time, mm-hmm. but y- you know, you don't you, your version is probably out there. It's probably <laughs> happening right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe not, but maybe coming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, you know, these things can happen quickly, as it did with our generation. It just kind of change happens quickly. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, some somebody gets an idea, and people follow, and and stuff starts to happen. Big mm-hmm. change, change in lifestyle. I think that's what happened with us, and it could happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, can I just read from the uh, a quote from the press release mm-hmm. that our publisher sent out that. Um, many young people who may sympathize with the Occupy movement will also see parallels in the political and social climate of the day and how it pushed these writers away from the biggest cities into their rural lifestyles. Yeah. I think the, the fundamental difference, though, is the thought of moving to a rural community now is, is very scary because you don't have those those employment opportunities, those economic opportunities. Or, and you don't have the, commu- the other people there well, doing yeah, the same thing. You, you know? have to take all your friends with you yeah. to make you feel like it's uh, it's something that is viable. Um, but I keep thinking you know, how much easier the communication would be. Like yeah. <clears throat> we lived, I mean, we didn't have any kind of radio contact. I mean, we, I mean, we were really pretty isolated mm-hmm. living on our little communities and I mean basically you talk to each other and saw each other but you didn't call each other up and with all the texting and mm-hmm. I wonder what it you know if you had that communication now how that would have changed mm-hmm. our life back then mm-hmm. 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 and also there aren't there more job opportunities in in the professions up in the north for example for doctors or teachers but not in the resource industry. Yeah. The resource no, industry the is, is dead. Yeah. You the know, logging is, is dead. I mean, that was what attracted a lot of people, and that's yeah, where they made their money yeah. and supported them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a specific industry now. It's mining in, yeah. in BC, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So, yep. And more on the interior, the coast. is is There's some activity, but it's more in the interior of BC. I think it's absolutely possible to recreate it. Mm-hmm. For I mean, I don't think we knew either. I mean, it's it's about sort of taking risks and doing it. For one thing, mm-hmm. and secondly, I think community is is. I mean, it's not dependent on where you are. Almost, you know, it's it's dependent on who you connect with and yeah. who you create that with. Mm-hmm. 
so for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think it is happening in, in with the kids your age. You know, you have your own communities. So yes, I, I think it's possible. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe to bring this to a close, perhaps we can go around and just offer up some thoughts that you had uh, maybe in, in the process of bringing these stories together in this book, um, but also more broadly what this experience in this period of your life um, really means to you and and, uh, uh, what you take from it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I say it in my story, I think the biggest thing that I have left from that period of my life is my current community, the community I've had for 35 years. And also that, you know, I, 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 my values have not changed a lot since then. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think those, those years basically imprinted these values in me that I still think are uh, important, you know, and still makes, is still different, I think, than sort of mainstream consumerism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, it's funny, I was thinking earlier today about how my sense of adventure has changed. You know, I'm not quite that adventurous anymore. But I, I, I like to think that I still have adventures ahead of me mm-hmm. based on the fact that my previous adventures worked. Mm-hmm. I'm living in that community and going and doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're all really grateful for the community that we belong to and the connections that, that we had based on our, our time there. Yeah. And that was... That was really reinforced um, when we were in, in uh, Prince Rupert. And there's something really special about that community. I, th- I think we all kind of felt that. And, and we're so, I think it means a lot to us that we have had this opportunity to, to reconnect with each other and um, people there and just, just um, think back to a really special time in our lives that has had a strong influence, I think, on the the last 30-something years. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's really impossible to believe that it went by that, that long ago. It seems like yesterday, or mm-hmm. maybe 10 years yeah. ago. <laughs> I still love to look at a map and look up the coast and remember what it looked like, what all those inlets look like coming mm-hmm. down the coast. And I'd recommend to everybody out there trying to get up the coast, mm-hmm. get all the way up and explore that, about 500 miles of mm-hmm. spectacular coastline that we have access to as Canadians. We're lucky that we got to live on that coast. And there's no oil tankers yet. Yeah, no oil tankers. Mm-hmm. Like destroy yeah. it. It's still pretty pristine. I, ju- I don't think, I think it's possible and essential for building community. I think that that's, you know, my view of the world, that's what the world needs is, is communities and um, just live it, I think, you know. Is it possible though to recreate? I don't that think you can recreate. R- well, I don't but, think you, you but like that that rural existence and that rural or sort of small community lifestyle, certainly on a, a certain scale. Well, it might not be you guys, everyone, but it might right? mean your kids. Might be your kids, or it might mm-hmm. be you know the twenty year olds. You know they're, they're the one. You know Ezra's age, yeah. or like a, yeah. you know. Um, I mean the natural world's out there, and. I mean, I think if you're looking at a global kind of thing, 
people ha have to live in the cities. If we're mm -hmm. thinking worldwide, mm -hmm. the city is where it's at. So we're very lucky, all of us, to have been able to live rurally in a in the country, you know, in the natural world. Mm -hmm. But I'm so glad I got to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, when I think about that time, I think um, about how I really felt so independent, you know, that I could deal with all my needs of life and and uh, I know that I could meet them, that I could, you know, put plastic in the window, fix the roof, I could put the windows in, I could get my wood together, I could deal with my food, I could, and, and doing it in community made it really easy. I mean, to be able, to, I've never again had neighbors where if, I mean, if Lori wasn't home, she was my neighbor, I knew I could go over and get a cup of sugar or whatever I was out of, right? That honey kind of honey. <laughs> 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 yes, dear. Um, you, you could have asked me <laughs> <laughs> for that period of time. But, but that was, it was a, I mean, I really think it's important, I mean, for our earth, if we can get those kind of communities happening again. But it means that we've gone so far in this, um, this revolution um, of communication that it's, it's hard to think of this happening, like how would that tie into it and how would it be different or, you know, because I mean people are used to being in this constant communication, whereas, I mean, I didn't call my folks, we had this set up, I'd go in every two weeks and give them a phone call, let them know I was alive, you know, which they appreciated. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it was clacked, I didn't have mm -hmm. a phone, right? And, and that made it a different kind of existence from what I see now if I was out there, right? Just that, um, yeah, that's that awesome. satisfaction of being able to to know that you could take care of yourself, right? And those around you, right? That you could, yeah, meet your needs pretty simply. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Are you a current UBC grad student? If so, then listen up, because the Graduate Student Society lets UBC grads book rooms and spaces in the newly renovated grad student building. Be sure to take advantage of what the facility has to offer. The rooms come equipped with sound systems and can host up to 300 people. Even better, as grad students, you don't have to pay booking fees. Not a grad? Don't worry. The Tia Corner House is open to the public, as in the Kerner Pub, opening earlier next year. For more information, contact booking manager Rob at bookings at gss.ubc.ca. In the 1970s, many women flocked to the North Coast in search of a different lifestyle, um, and they found that in the port city of Prince Rupert. It was a resource town, and the local economy was booming, as you heard um, with, those past, with those stories on the show today. And we heard from a handful of um, the 34 women, the gumboot girls, who migrated to Prince Rupert, Haida Gwaii, and other surrounding communities 
on BC's north coast, many coming from larger cities across the country, so certainly a form of urban to rural migration. Their stories are documented in a new book published by Muskeg Press, Gumboot Girls, Adventure, Love, and Survival on the North Coast of British Columbia. And you can check out uh, the book launch here in Vancouver on November 30th at 7 p.m. at the People's Co-op Books on Commercial Drive. And you can check all that out, um, and I'll have that posted at thecityfm.org. And that's also the place uh, to find this as a podcast, as well as a past uh, an archive of past shows um, fully archived on that site. That Again, thecityfm.org. Mia Edbrook produced this program, and thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and again, as a podcast from thecityfm.org. And you can follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore FM, and also check us out on Facebook by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions. And we're going to be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Have a great week. Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started.